Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from production to conception all the way to release and reception. It is episode five of season three. Chris, it was your choice. It's a new movie. Drum roll. What did you choose? I chose for us to trace the life of a movie with a very long title. It's called Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. And it's directed by Josh Greenbaum, but probably more known as a Kristen Wiig movie, uh, along with Annie Mumolo, who uh, co-wrote and co-stars with Wiig, the SNL alum, in a movie that, uh, I mean, I don't know about you, Dan, but one reason I chose the movie is because yeah, it was one of the <laughs> one of the last movies that I remember very clearly seeing the trailer for in the movie theaters in the before times. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that because I remember seeing it and then my first reaction was, how is this possible? Like, <laughs> what, what were the forces that came together that thought like, oh, let's give this, we don't know what the, bu- the budget is on this, but it's a wide, it's a wide release. Technically, it was supposed to be from Lionsgate, which is a semi-major studio, it's say top five studio, top six. Um, so it's, you know, at least 10 million, if not more, maybe 15, 20. I don't really know what it's at, but I can tell you with confidence above, probably above $15 million. How did this get greenlit? Like, what was the process? What was going on here? Um, but what was the, re- there's got to be a bigger impetus to choose this film. There's something here for you. What is it? You know, uh, this is the first season of the show where I'm regularly watching the movies with my wife. Uh, and, uh, I was kind of, uh, looking at Malcolm and Marie, but that got dragged pretty, uh, quickly on Netflix. And once I read more about it, I decided to hands off on that one. And ultimately it really traced back to one of our first episodes, which was the Eurovision movie. And I remembered how, well, that's like our shortest episode. It was a pretty quick in and out. And I feel like we had been covering a lot of heavy uh like down the rabbit hole subjects especially just coming off of our episode last week um doing a deep dive on michael mann's thief from 1981 and uh i'm just i feel like so many of us i don't know about you dan but i'm looking for the fluff for the escapism i want to sit and just like forget about the horrifying world for 105 minutes maybe that's a little bit too many minutes but (laughs) but still like i i don't know i was just sucked into the idea of just like being sitting on the couch with my wife and laughing maybe not a lot and yeah it wasn't a lot but it was enough (laughs) to be diversionary Uh, adequately yeah i mean okay we already started centering we were putting the goalpost really wide i guess the goalpost yeah that's supposed to be it's very wide or the Mm -hmm. the the high bar very low yeah Uh, i get where you're coming from without a doubt (laughs) and um it's definitely a a diversion comedy um what let's do the plot line on this thing um so it was released this last friday on i guess what pvod so it costs 20 bucks to get Mm -hmm. um not cheap um, of course, I didn't pay that. Give me a break. Um, and so this is the plot here. The story of best friends Barb and Star who leave their small Midwestern town. Let me stop you there. Um, <laughs> Midwestern. This is the thing that I kept coming back to in this movie. Let me finish the log line. I'll go back to this point. Who leave their small Midwestern town for the first time to go on vacation uh, in Vista Del Mar, Florida, where they soon find themselves tangled up in adventure, love, and a villain's evil plot to kill everyone in town. 
back to this Midwestern point. Like this um, is the part of the log line that you're sticking with. The, but no, but it, <laughs> it it goes into the entire movie, and there's like a point that like I can't get over. Okay, so uh, if you're from the Midwest, and both of us are you know born and bred in the Midwest, we grew up in the Midwest in Wisconsin, which is mm-hmm. you know not the center of the Midwest, but pretty darn close. It's the heartland, baby. Yeah, the heartland. Uh, Nebraska is not the Midwest. And like it doesn't really it's a different sort of culture as well. It's like if you ask somebody in Iowa, do they live in the Midwest? They're going to say yes. If you ask somebody in the middle of Nebraska, they would say, no, I live in the Great Plains. Hmm. They'd be like asking somebody in North Dakota if you live in the Midwest. You don't live in the Midwest. It's just like a different sort of vibe. So that's number one. Um, Also, with that, uh, their accent their accent is not from nebraska either their accent is like I, what would you call their accent uh i mean it's i mean it is i, I think it's midwestern mom like a very mm-hmm. absurdist version of that but like where would you pinpoint where that accent's from are you it's trying not to... from ohio <laughs> are you it's are not you... Fr- it's not from illinois are you trying to lead me to minnesota i mean the place it, there's where I definitely live? some Minnesota in there, is there not? <laughs> sure. There's some Minnesota. There's some Fargo. There's some. Uh, there's some Wisconsin, right? Mm-hmm. A little bit of Wisconsin, maybe some Michigan, but definitely a very traditional sort of upper Midwest accent. Uh, I just want to point those things out before we dive deeper. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. I mean, it is, it is a you know split second title card. You could have blinked and you missed it. It really ultimately in my opinion, doesn't matter at the end of the day what well, state no, they course. picked it. They picked for uh, uh, the hometown of these two wacky... Soft, soft Rock, characters. Nebraska is where they're from. Uh, I, I do want to point, I did some quick Googling while you were talking, Dan, and uh, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, Nebraska is uh, one of the Midwest states. There is no way Nebraska <laughs> is the Midwest. <laughs> Let's do a survey with listeners. Okay, yes. Uh, tweet at us. Uh, let us know. Is Nebraska? We'll do a, we'll do a survey below the episode with the Nebraska is the Midwest. What an absurd claim. It's okay, like so Britannica is that out of print? I mean, that's not even real. <laughs> <laughs> let's get back to task here. Kristen yeah, Wiig. Yeah, let's talk about the movie and Annie Mumolo, uh I mean, honestly, when we saw when I saw this trailer when it was in theaters, you know, they did this. Uh, it was kind of obnoxious, to be honest, and I'm really glad they didn't really like hang their hat on it in the movie, but of like these uh, extreme close ups of the hair, the culottes, etc. And so, like, I remember in the trailer being like, wait, so that's obviously Kristen Wiig. Who's with her? Because Annie Mumolo is not nearly uh, as much of a household name. No. And so I was wondering, like, is is it Maya Rudolph playing her, you know, co-star? Is it uh, there's so many other people it could have been. Um but apparently, Annie Mumolo and Ellie, and uh, Kristen Wiig have been kind of lock and step for a number of years, going all the way back to the Groundling, right? Uh, and so when we look at these two actors, you would automatically think like, okay, this is Kristen Wiig's movie. But I, I mean, that was one of the things that stood out right away is that while she Mumolo had a bit, bit part in Bridesmaids, that uh, these two have kind of been like. They they refer to each other in interviews as cr- their each other's creative wife. Uh, so there's yeah. a strong partnership here that I mean I was completely unaware of, and I mean I feel like both of us have followed Kristen Wiig pretty 
you know, closely over the years, you know, having yeah. followed her ever since she debuted on SNL when we were in college. Yeah, so, it sounds like they, yeah, they were super close in the 20s. I think Kristen Wiig moved there when she got out of school or whatever uh, and really kind of got into the ground leans. And I think uh, Momolo is from Orange County. So she, I think she went to Berkeley too. So she's a California person. Uh, and it sounds like, yeah, they wrote a ton. And then I think there was a moment when Wig got SNL. I think Andy was sort of like, oh no, we're kind of going to break up. But it sounds like they kept very close touch and were writing together throughout that entire time period that she was on SNL, uh, which, you know, culminated, of course, in Bridesmaids, yeah. which, you know, they co-wrote. And it's obviously one of the biggest comedies of the last, what, 15, 20 years. I think one of the better comedies of the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, but kind of definitely a very different style than this, right? Like th that was more of the Judd Apatow kind of dramedy of the mid 2000s and that kind of maybe ended that phase in 2011 this is way more absurdist um and like very and it, it, i think it the style of this film which is farcical th uh, is a lot more indebted to their um improv days um back in la together it seems like um and when you like look at like how they you know talked about making the film and stuff like that it does it does seem born of those earlier improv days uh, and kind of workshopping these two characters together for like what 20 years now probably more uh and so it kind of has that comfortable feel to it um what about the director here is he this, this guy well known like i didn't really know him at all yeah me neither uh he is largely a documentary filmmaker his name's josh greenbaum and he won the audience award at south by southwest in 2013 for his kind of comedic documentary not quite a mockumentary though wig definitely refers to his work as mockumentary but he has like this like playful joyous kind of style of documentary filmmaking that is not farcical but definitely leans heavily on uh interviews and conversations with interview subjects that uh lend itself to being a you know more crowd-pleasing style of documentary that uh first one was called the short came about uh kid professional golfers and then he did a tv docu-series called behind the mask about mascots and they did several episodes of New Girl and Fresh Off the Boat for Fox and ABC, respectively. Uh, but it was at the screening, um, one of the advanced screenings for his 2017 documentary, Becoming Bond, where he met Wig. And she just happened to be in the audience. And uh, he, she could tell, you know, that he kind of focused on, um, what's that guy? The, what, the dude that played Bond for just one movie, George oh, Lazenby. Yeah. Right? And so it, it's kind of a, you know, a a fun idea for a documentary like how did how did we wind up compared to all the other you know actors in the bond franchise with a guy that from australia that just played bond for one single movie and so it's kind of a i mean i haven't seen it but apparently uh it's it's a a, a different take on the documentary genre that uh doesn't go so far into mockumentary but definitely is not your straight serious documentary like you typically find um with these kinds of things. And then he also did a specifically a documentary on comedians, uh, including Dana Carvey and several other big nineties names called too funny to fail. And so it seemed like wig was looking for an interesting, um, thread to pull together. And also Momolo said in one of the interviews, I believe with variety that, you know, they, they considered taking on the directorial duties themselves, but, being co-stars in the film and as well as being in charge of the script uh they they wanted somebody to help them out like this is a huge production 
going to the Caribbean uh, to film in July an elaborate series of set pieces. And you didn't think you wouldn't think that a, a documentary filmmaker would be able to take on this kind of level of project. Yeah. But uh, apparently, you know, a, a little luck, a little uh, trust and faith. And they they went with a newbie, which is typically not you what something you would do for no. something like this, especially for somebody like Wig, who's been, you know, who, who broke through with one of the biggest uh, comedies of the past couple of decades, like you mentioned, The Bridesmaid. And uh, who's the real wild card here is Jamie Dornan. What's, yes. What's that all about? So we know him from, he's a very look, good looking man. Uh, he used to be a model, but he turned actor. Of course, you know him from Fifty Shades of Grey and that whole series. And he, the Fall, I don't really know that. Um, Robin Hood, but he's known from Fifty Shades of Grey, that whole series. What do you make of him showing up in this film? It's a it's a strange choice. And honestly, I yeah. didn't even know it until I looked up the cast the day before press and play on the movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, it makes sense. You've got to have somebody fill that role. And there's definitely that kind of um, vibe you get where it's like you're just looking for somebody that could be a pretty face that can play the straight guy character, but also have some kind of uh, um, comedic stylings, uh, maybe intentionally or otherwise. Yeah. Uh and I don't know. I mean, it, it made it made me think about uh, Dan Stevens in Eurovision, yeah, totally. which I know we disagreed on uh, <laughs> when we did that episode. Um, yeah, but yeah. what I really like about Dornan in this role is that it feels like he's halfway in on the joke. You know, yeah, and I guess you could call it something. I mean, <laughs> it, it seems like there's a he did an interview with Entertainment Weekly about his role in the film, and it seems like. He 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 seems game, but he seems like he's kind of out of he, uh, it's he's out of his depths, and that I think yeah. is what makes it makes it fun. It maybe makes it a little cringy, but it makes yeah. it more interesting. I think than just having yet another person sink their teeth into like a, a hammy scenery chewing well, role. Yeah, like normally this role will be played by in this whole crew another Groundlings person or Second City person or you know another improv. Yeah. sort of standard that we get in these movies so it's kind of it isn't a very interesting pick uh to bring him in here especially as somebody he's so well known from i mean what would you call erotic thriller series i don't know what you call <laughs> yeah. it erotic yeah. fan fiction uh which is what it is and um i mean i kudos to like number one getting him to do it and yeah. like making <laughs> that choice because it it does add something really odd to the film and I do think the purpose of this film in a lot of different ways is sort of just to, to be odd and abnormal. And it, it's very absurdist. Uh, I did not expect it to be uh, half as absurd as it is uh, mm -hmm. when I started watching it. And then within the first 10 or 12 minutes, the first 10 minutes, you're like, okay, I get this. This is kind of like an SNL comedy, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but then it just goes off the rails um, pretty immediately, like right when they get down to Florida and it just kind of like ups the ante over and over again. Um, I think one thing to note, too, about the production of this, Gloria Sanchez Productions, uh, which is sort of an offshoot of Gary Sanchez, Gary Sanchez Productions, which you know as Will Ferrell and Adam McKay. Uh, and so basically his, uh, his original assistant, uh, Jessica Elbaum, uh, who then became a kind of a producer for Will Ferrell, um, she ended up saying, hey, I want to do this production company. Uh, she starts it. They did Sleeping with Other People in 2015, which nobody saw. Right. Uh, but they did Book Smart, which is huge. Hustlers, which was huge, and they also did Eurovision Song Contest, Story of Fire Saga. Um, 
And so that's that's an interesting sort of angle here. I without that backing, I don't see this movie getting made. Mm-hmm. I think it's that specific, almost like incubator um, within sort of Gary Sanchez Productions and using sort of Will Ferrell's sort of power and the clout that they got from these other movies that allowed this movie to happen. Um, because it's not, um, it doesn't look cheap at all. Like, no. especially that like dance routine when they get to the the hotel. I mean, that's a pretty triple A sort of um, uh, montage they put together when they call it. And uh, so, yeah, it's not a cheaply made film at all. But um, yeah, I think it's it's something to note that how these things get made. Uh, it's not just like Kristen Wiig and Momolo like saying, "Ah, oh, we won't make this movie." It, it took a long time. Like they said, five six years. Yep to get this thing really off the ground and get it moving. Um, where did it come from? Where is this, where is this barb and star? What is this all about? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, like we mentioned earlier, it seems pretty random uh, that they, you know, decide to invest in these brand new characters. And I think that's important to note about this movie. Like there's, there's no previous IP. There's not even like an SNL sketch that this originates from. This literally originates just from the two uh actors and co-writers hanging out on uh during while writing bridesmaids and coming up with this basically extended universe is that fair to say of characters that's very accurate yeah and so they were just riffing and thinking about you know what would the characters and bridesmaids what would their moms be like right uh so lillian uh the maya rudolph's character they you know basically came up with her mom uh, as a potential like addition to the script uh, but you know especially bridesmaids i think that's one of the one of my issues with that movie I, I i it's great but it's a little on the long side a little overstuffed and oh, so very long, one of yeah. the things as a lot of appetite movies are so one of the things they decided to do was you know just you know excise the fat from that part but there that that uh that relationship um still seemed to like just continue with them and so I don't know if this if this movie's been cooking for five and a half, six years and Bridesmaids came out in 2011. It seems like they perhaps were just like sticking with this character of Lillian's mom uh, for, you know, at least three or four years before they realize like this deserves its own centerpiece. And so that's where then they decide to go all in. And uh, I like one of the quotes. I don't remember if it's Wig or Mumolo, where they basically decide that they going to move forward with them freely note overthink it uh don't make it like focused on reality like bridesmaids arguably is uh, to some degree yeah. and a lot of those you know like you mentioned kind of the end of the era apatow movies they were trying to get away from that trying to go see how silly they could get with it and yeah i mean follow uh, what really interests me about this is like the source of these characters um and like they talk about, there's a quote from um, Molo. Um, they probably came from a lot of different places in our heads, but some of it's like your mom, some of it's like your aunt and other family relatives, but more and more we're realizing how much they're us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she says in the New York Times, or Wig says, we de- uh, definitely gravitated towards characters of middle age realm. It was almost an afterthought where years later we were like, wow, all of our characters are middle aged women <laughs> who have crazy wigs. Um, and then there's another thing from the New York Times where she basically says, um, uh, kind of talking about these characters that have grown over the years, the more we talk about it, we do realize these characters are a lot of who we are, which I find interesting. And I'm going to bring, I'm going back to the Midwestern thing because I, I, I can't get away, <laughs> away from it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So 
they're obviously supposed to be from like Nebraska, Midwest, whatever. Uh, and like they say, oh, it's kind of, you know, extensions of who we are and stuff like that. None of them are from the Midwest and right. none of them ever lived in the Midwest. Uh, Momolo has always lived in Los Angeles. She grew up in California, was born in Irvine, went to high school there. I, I went through their entire histories. Um, none of them are, have ever mid- lived in the Midwest at all. And so I find it sort of like, did you feel like there is an authenticity? Let's, let's throw out the Nebraska thing. Let's say Nebraska is part of the Midwest or middle of the country. Did you feel like there's an authenticity to that? Or did it feel just sort of like an improv character they just created? Yeah, I mean, it, it's tough to to dig into that. I mean, it also brings to mind um, the conversations that erupted over the characters in Fargo, right? Yeah, uh, which is you know still absurdist, um, but perhaps that cut a little too close for some people because it was played <laughs> so straight, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think I, I think there's you know the colonel is here too, where it's like the colonel is the stereotype, and then they just went in this far off trajectory and ultimately let me stop you there okay what's the stereotype the stereotype of like the 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 midwest mom with the accent who uh is obsessed with magazines and uh like big hair and these kinds of things like it's it's almost rooted in an antiquated stereotype at this point i would say like it feels like um it feels like a stereotype that you would see in the 90s of the midwest yeah it feels like it's a throwback to a, a throwback stereotype from an older time period. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think that that makes sense. I mean, you know, I would say, yeah, I mean, that's the one thing where it's sort of like, yeah, look, it's an absurdist comedy. Like, why am I diving, diving into it? But I think that there's, to me, there was just sort of like, okay, they're from the, like, I'm from the Midwest and not a lot of this connects like with like how they're talking or how they're thinking. And also there's nothing specific that they're they're um spoofing like you'll have stuff like talbots and chicos in the kirkland <laughs> mm-hmm. brand at costco which is kind of funny um or actually was really funny um but then outside of that it's just not i don't know it just there's nothing there to hold on to as like an actual reference to any sort of actual person that i know i guess i would say like do you know anybody in your life that you think would be, I know that this is an absurdist version of people, but do you think that there's anybody in your life that you know that's close to this? No. I mean, I think that's, I think that's part of the appeal though, is that yeah. there it's, like it, it's, it's, yeah, it's fantasy. It's out of this world. Like, I mean, I, I guess I didn't even care to Google it. Is Vista Del Mar even a real place in Florida? No, no. And Vista, yeah, <laughs> Vista Del Mar is, yeah, I was thinking about like, cause like, oh, even going down to Florida and stuff like that, like that part of it as well it's sort of like it's not really it's all fantasy because yeah. like it's like they didn't even film it in florida number one but um florida isn't really like that i don't think like it doesn't really have those elements to it i mean some no. of it is like that but there's there's no specific i guess the whole point i'm trying to make is they're not actually spoofing anything real right it's just like pure fantasy absurdist um sort of style comedy and I think that's that's part of uh, a fair criticism in general of the film is that because it doesn't have like, uh, uh, I don't know, a real origin to like grab onto uh, like some of the more gut busting comedies do. You're kind of left with that. Like I meant I used the word fluff earlier and I mean, I wouldn't use fluff to describe the word fluff to describe uh, some of my favorite comedies. And I don't think this is one of my favorite comedies, but it's. <laughs> 
I mean, that's kind of a, it's a double-edged sword, if you will, where like you're, if you're going to make it so ridiculous that it doesn't even have any semblance of reality, then it's really going to just feel kind of uh, ephemeral at the end of the day. Uh, but on the plus side, you, I, I, I think we did get something that we really haven't gotten in a long time, Yeah, which is no, a lot of money and resources being put into <laughs> being as goofy as you possibly can. Yeah. And, and it, you yeah. know, maybe, maybe, I don't know, a half to two thirds of it lands, but that's enough. That's enough for me nowadays because we don't get stuff like this. Can you think of the last movie like this? Well, that's what I was trying to think of the entire time I was watching this. I was like, what does this remind me of? The only sort of parallel I could say is Hot Rod, Mm -hmm. um, which was kind of like, when was that? When was Hot Rod? Is that like 10 years ago or probably a lot longer? More like 2008, maybe? Yeah, 2008, I think. 2007. Um, Hot Rod. And then there's like Napoleon Dynamite, but like, no. It's not, it, it, there's shades of it, but Hot Rod feels the closest to me, or someone um, also brought up Popstar. Yeah. Um, and I thought like, yeah, sort of. This is more absurdist than that. Um, this is really just kind of out there um, because what is it parodying? It's not parodying anything. It's no. like made up improv characters that kind of, they just let it run. Um, and they said that, like they even said, uh, what was it, like, talk about the writing process. Um, they're basically like, yeah, normally when you're writing something, you don't put in all of this stuff because you know what people are going to say. You know what's going to not going to be censored, but it's going to be like, oh, you can't put this in there. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, and then they said on, on this one, we put it all in there. Like, let's see what happens. Uh, we didn't want to censor ourselves as we went. Mm-hmm. Um, and you definitely has that free flowing spirit to it. Uh, and in terms of what you're you know, saying, like it, it feels something different. You know, Josh Greenbaum said to RogerEbert.com, you know, he said, I grew up on John Hughes and then fell in love with what Judd Apatow has done. But a lot of that was more in a dramedy space. And this is a return to fun and comedy with a capital C. Um, so that was it's obviously intended to create something new. And that's, I mean, at the very least, that's what they've done is that it's not like any other comedy. Like, what was the biggest comedy last year? I don't even know. Like, I'm like. What were big comedies of the last few years? Like, um, like Good Blockers, Boys, Game Nights. Uh, yeah, that one. Yep. Can you think of anything? <laughs> no, that is like, like this. I mean, I mean th- not only do uh, a lot of older films come up when in conversation with this movie in terms of like SNL stars like Andy Samberg, but also um, I'm getting a lot of uh, which is almost coincidental because we also watched this for our group <laughs> yeah, night movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Constant references to the Zucker Zucker Brothers and the Naked Gun series, Top Secret, um, which I think is fair. But like you said, they're not parodying anything. So then that got me yeah. thinking about probably one of the best comedies of all time, which was mentioned while we were watching the Naked Gun with friends over Zoom, uh, Carl Reiner's The Jerk, which is sure, yeah. an abs- a s- completely off the wall absurdist comedy that doesn't parody any or spoof anything in particular no right yeah and it and i think there's a, a, a big connection there and another big connection with those two fit with the jerk and barb and star is that um at the end of the day and i i really like what greenbaum said about this in his interview about like what he was trying to go for is like this uh just pure joy like joy is sure, the yeah. is the overwhelming factor here and you know, there's another big connection to uh, going back to another SNL star, Mike Myers, uh, Austin Powers, which 100%. once again is parodying yeah. something particular. But like 
even down to the point where you have Kristen Wiig playing both the hero and the villain yeah. as mirror images of each other, right? Uh, another very indebted to all yes. the powers. <laughs> that um, aspect specifically. Right, right. And one last connection that I thought was really uh, apt from uh, Letterboxd user Chris Evangelista that you put in our notes. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He, he wrote, this is like a Muppet movie, but all the Muppets are played by humans. It's so deliriously <laughs> silly. Sure to become a cult classic, which I think is That's... total right on too. I think that that's really right on because a lot of the social I've read all through the, like the Reddit comments on our movies. I did a deep dive on this thing and all the Twitter stuff. And like definitely the people that reacted well to the film see it just like that. It's like this very um, kind of nuanced, absurdist, strange trip mm-hmm. uh, that if you do get on board, you're probably going to enjoy it. Um, but you have to get on board like you have to sort of go with yeah. it like it's like a yes and thing from improv like you just gotta let this thing fly right. and uh, like and you'll get something out of it and like the muppets it's not a trip that that is you know subversive by any means i don't think it's just straight up wholesome like there's no yeah. i don't see any like badness no. or meanness in this movie it just feels so pure which i think is maybe one of the reasons why it's connecting so much during the you know and nth hour of the pandemic yeah the endless pandemic that we're in i will say this i will have to um and, and dornan says this uh in the in uh, entertainment weekly said um you know, he loves comedies like airplane hot shots naked gun um i don't see the connection really at all to those films. i just don't see it like naked gun we just watched Mm-hmm. Um, and it just like that is such a dry sense of humor and this is not dry humor at all like this is just like in your face absurdist i'm saying something because it's weird whereas naked gun it's like it's just it's a very different comedic style and yeah. it's not just the difference between spoof and farce or whatever it's like it's just a different setup and different comedic style and i think um, i think the big thing and i also i agree especially after just watching it with you and our friends is that uh i mean i think it comes down to i actually think top secret is a better zucker yeah, production to compare it to yeah and i think it literally comes down to the the performers like sure if you have leslie nielsen and oj simpson yeah they play it straight 100 like naked gun is like if jamie dornan played all of the characters right yeah. whereas in top secret you've got val kilmer who is smart enough to be in on it along with several other co-stars and he's like smiling the whole time just like barb and star are in this movie so it's yeah. it, it all depends on the performers and i think that at the end of the day that was it, i don't i don't think this movie would have worked as well if they had i don't know gotten like Kristen stewart and emma stone to play no. barb and star that would be horrible <laughs> never would have worked that sounds like a hulu holiday movie um <laughs> in any event oh, what, a couple of things from the production notes that we, i was just thinking about like there's two things that stood out to me and just thinking about how movies are made um but like essentially so dornan said that on the script it basically says his character edgar emotionally dances in a footloose fashion he didn't even think about it he goes down to production and they're like oh we need to get you a a choreographer and he's like what are you talking about it's like this one line that ends up being i think one of the more funnier sequences in the entire film it's long it's a highlight and it's elaborate and the same thing greenbaum says you know they had 100 dancers for the hotel thing blah 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 the huge musical number um, they said it, they had to shoot it over the course of the entire production. It was that big and intricate. 
Um, but in another interview, which I didn't put here, he basically said that in the script, it just said, there's a musical number when they arrive at the hotel. And that's it. <laughs> and he didn't realize until he started to talk to like, or like Kristen Wiig might have said this. She's like, oh, yeah, we got to do that. And so they wrote like a song and did this whole thing after the script was already written and they're already like on set to produce this stuff. So Amazing. it was like. There's a real sort of like there's definitely like an improv vibe to a lot of what's happening. Um, and I don't think that like that hurts it at all because I think that like the 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 dance and musical aspects of this film work really well. Um, yeah. But they were not super uh, planned out before they got on set to really right. do it, which I thought was really fascinating. And that kind of goes back to, you know, the whole point of having Greenbaum on hand as a director to help organize probably that still kind of half instilled haphazardness that comes from being an snl star for so long like they're used to like working on you know on or past deadline all the time um i did want to put a quick uh plug in for you mentioned this musical number a couple times now and just like how expensive the movie looks but also just like how good the movie looks yeah Um, it's shot by toby oliver who is usually blumhouse's you know main cinematographer oh Oh, happy Uh, happy death day to you is that the guy yeah and get out and fantasy island and so like get out was shot so well that was right five million dollar budget four million dollar budget right so like they so you know going back to your question about the budget as well as like you know maybe they they were one of the reasons they were able to finagle this was not just will ferrell's money but also because you know, they they made sure to collect a crew that knew how to do things low key. And if Greenbaum's only done documentaries before, he's probably used to working on yeah, a shoestring a as well. Yeah, so it's just it's really impressive. Uh, the, the I mean, the any everything from the coloring to the choreography is just well, it's pretty it's pretty impeccable for a movie that clearly has no interest in you know formality or craft. <laughs> But that's because it was meant for wide release. Yeah. Right. So it would, the, this thing, we can't forget that like, this was, what was it supposed to get released originally? I can't remember. Last summer, right? I'd imagine if we were seeing trailers in the theater summer back in 2020, January 2020. Yeah. Yeah. So they were going to put this out. And I'm, I'm actually kind of interested to, as to why they pushed it to streaming. Because as of like, I want to say like two or three months ago, this was just pushed theatrically till later in the year. And then kind of the bully was like, we're not doing that. We're just going to do PVOD. Which is kind of a bold decision to make by Lionsgate. I don't know why you would do that or like what the business decisions were to to do that because they are doing film releases now, right? right. Half the country acts like there's no pandemic, so like it is what it is. Um, you know, like what's big stuff that's been out? I mean, Wonder Woman was in theaters, right? right? Like, so I can't really figure out why they decided to do that. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it, it, does it take away from the film? I, I, the big question moving on to release, do you think this would have done well in the box office? I can tell you what I think right now. <laughs> no, I, I can't imagine it would have done well. And I think <laughs> maybe no that's way. part of the reason there's that they no decided to push it to PVOD. There's, there's literally no way in hell this movie. Like, there's nothing to pull people in. And what's the demographic? What's the demographic? Like, it's, if you think of, like, the four quads, over and under 25 years old, male, female. No, it's 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 over male. 25 females, maybe? It's mostly females in their 30s. And yeah. <laughs> that's about it. Yeah. Um, and and anybody else that, you know, follows Kristen Wiig. Like, I've, I feel like it wouldn't have done horribly, but it definitely wouldn't have done as good as, like, uh, even a movie like Game Night or Good Boys did. No. No, uh, no, no, yeah. Because it's, it's, missing, it's missing that either realistic aspect or the cross-genre aspect. Um there's just there's 
there there is no money in there's not a lot of comedy. money here <laughs> yeah it's a lot of money here and if you take a look uh, at the stuff that you know lionsgate is looking to still release this year it's yeah. stuff like spiral the new take on the saw yeah, franchise there's genre trash studio yeah like, I, I can't even understand how they got involved in this either like it's just sort of like lionsgate's genre films yep uh, like the, I don't even know what they're called, the Witch Hunter. Was that something they did? I don't know. Just put witch and like ghoul or something, and they probably did it. Um, right. But the, 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 so if it did get released, but like the critics love this thing, right? 82% all critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 86%. Uh, Metacritic's a little bit lower at 68. And I will say the actual scores from critics are in the 60s. So it's again, this is where like Rotten Tomatoes can be pretty misleading, mm-hmm. where it's basically like 82% sounds like it's almost like, well, that's really good. But if you look at the actual scores, they're actually 66 out of 100, which doesn't sound nearly as good, does it? Yeah. No. Um, and then audience seems to like it. I remember when I, I posted that thing on Slack that was like, critics score 82%, audience score 25%. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> that was, was very early on. That yes, was very early yes. on. Um, um, and yeah, now it, now the audience score is at 77, real score of 80. Um, letterboxed uh, score of 72, which is pretty high for a straight yeah. comedy. Um good. IMDb of 66, bringing it down to earth a little bit more. Um, but at the end of the day, like, I think that for a movie that's so goofy and so, like, just recklessly silly, that I, I don't know if you could get better scores than that. Like, what were the scores for Hot Rod back in 2007? Oh, much lower than this. Exactly. Yeah. So I think there's there there's some, there's a, there's a timing factor, and maybe that was also part of the decision to put it to PVOD instead of theatrical is, like, strike while the iron's hot nobody's putting anything out like this right now and maybe yeah. people are willing to shell out 20 bucks because they're depressed stuck at their house right yeah uh and they just want to laugh <laughs> so uh one of my favorite reviews was by sheila o'malley at RogerEbert.com. i think she made a, a a good encapsulation of what makes this movie work which is she says what matters is the energy and the confident propulsion of all the silliness grounded by wig and mumolo whose characterizations may be broad, but never empty caricatures. And I think that goes back to the whole Midwest mom thing is like, you definitely could have played these characters and it would have just rang hollow and mean. But because there's so much just like wholesomeness to the proceedings, even when it gets kind of scatological, it's still like Wig and Mumolo do really feel like in these roles, like they are half actually Barb and Star and half making fun of somebody like barb and star but it's definitely more balanced towards a good-natured kind of humor yeah Um, absolutely and one quick uh middling review which i also kind of agree with uh from beatrice loiza of new york times barb and star's oddball palavering has its charms thanks to wig and mamalo's natural rapport but the character's silliness is less gut-wrenchingly funny than it is mostly weird and whimsical yeah i mean at the end of the day like it didn't it didn't leave me in stitches like uh, no, yeah, like yeah. even Popstar did. Like I, I was losing it. I was in tears Honestly, at the end of Popstar. Like, I don't like Popstar. Oh, just, my gosh. Just like psh, right over my head. I'm like, I don't what? Oh, my gosh. Every musical number. But uh, <laughs> but there, there's there's enough in the movie that, you know, I, I'll take I'll take whimsy. Um, Some people don't like whimsy, movie. like Mick LaSalle. I yeah. Let's just go around and go. I, so I got to I have to confess. Mick LaSalle is probably one of my favorite critics uh he's become a little bit of a curmudgeon uh and this sort of there's a great he just destroys the film 
he gives it like a like a zero stars essentially uh, i'll just read like one part of his quote here it's very long but i'll just read sort of the the byline here in a sense it's a, it's an experiment that doesn't work the fact that it doesn't work reveals something about the nature of comedy itself uh, it seems like an attempt by two longtime collaborators to write and star in a film that they themselves consider to be funny not to worry about story or character but to create instead a transparent joke machine um okay uh there's a great the the at the end here it especially should work but considering that there are really lots of jokes in this movie uh as isolated jokes are not bad lots of the bits are unexpected clever and even imaginative they show unmistakable comedic gifts yet barb and star remains from start to finish the living death (laughs) of comedy thank you mick lasalle like it's just i don't agree with him like i think he's being way too hard and harsh on the film here but I actually don't think he's that far off uh, in terms of sort of like, you know, like there's, okay, we can view films in a lot of different ways, right? And like, mm, you know, like I watched Home Again. Um, who made that? Nancy Myers, I think her daughter did. Uh, Reese with this. I watched that twice this weekend. It was on uh, <laughs> IFC. I left it on loop and I really enjoyed having it on the background. It felt like my version of a warm, comfy fire. Um, that's one type of film and that's on one type of enjoyment. Right. And so I think what you said to kind of start out, like this is a diversion film, mm-hmm. right? It's wholesome. It's joyful. It's absurdist. It's, it takes us away from a very trying time. I think in most people's lives. Um, and that's one, another type of enjoyment. I think what's hard though, as like a film critic or an art critic, someone like Mick LaSalle, who has his PhD in film studies, he's not like some schlub, right? Um, What's hard, I think, is that he's trying to contextualize the film uh, throughout film history, mm-hmm. right? And then when you try to do that and slot this in somewhere, it, it, number one, it doesn't really fit, right? We already discussed that. Like, you could say Hot Rod and Popstar, but it even it's even weirder than that in a lot of ways. Right. Um, and then if you don't know what to do with it and you don't like the comedy, there's going to be a gut reaction of, like, to other, 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 uh, like, turn this into the other in some sense, right? Mm-hmm. um and i think that's what he's doing here i think it's really easy to do it's sort of like this doesn't make i mean I, and i kind of agree with him like i don't get it i laughed like a few times throughout the film i can't imagine spending years making this <laughs> and being like oh yeah this is it this is like what i'm gonna do and that's not to disparage the work it's just like it's a very confident absurdist thing to do and i don't think that it works uh and it's like there is some level of judgment there right of course um but i mean that's the question it's i think the big question about this and one of the reasons we do this podcast is where is this film going to be in 10 years like when we're doing we're doing film trace in 2031 is this going to be an anniversary episode are we are people going to look back and be like oh yeah like this was an important film or a really not maybe not an important film culturally but like an important film in my life that's a, I mean, I think that's a good question. I think one big factor that we haven't mentioned at all um, is the fact that unlike so many of the other touch points for comedic movies throughout film history that we've talked about, um, there's no really corollary for a female-driven comedy. And sure. even looking at Bridesmaids, which, yeah, definitely is worthy, even though I don't love it, I think it is worthy of that you know 10th anniversary look back. Um, and will probably continue to be 20th anniversary, so on and so forth. Will yeah. this one? I don't know. I think it's still stuck. It's 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 too idiosyncratic to know whether it will wind up. Like I think 
no one would have expected that anybody would be talking about Hot Rod on a podcast. Yeah, you know, <laughs> but are we the years only people talking about Hot Rod? You know, I don't think so. I think it is. Yeah, you're right, you're I, right. I think uh, the whole Lonely Island crew is is gonna their their work is gonna is gonna age really well uh, yeah. because it's so idiosyncratic. So, I mean, I want to err on the side of yes, just because I mostly enjoyed the movie. Um, but, uh, I think it's also very possible that it could get lost, uh, to time. I don't know. I I, think, I think, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was gonna say, like, I think that, uh, I mean, one of the things that makes comedy so difficult to really analyze, of course, is that it's, it's in the eye of the beholder. And I do think I could totally see if I was watching this movie by myself, uh, that my read could have been totally different. And, you know, comedy lives off of, uh, communal enjoyment. And yeah. being able to watch it side by side with my wife and uh, kind of see her own joy in it, too, really added to it. Like, just like seeing her, like, deliriously lose it at Morgan Freeman as a blue crab on the seashore, even though I didn't personally find that that entertaining. Like, you just get joy in seeing other people get joy in it. And uh, yeah, comedy is contagious. All yeah, right. exactly. It's contagious. Um, you know, it could be, you know, this could be the bill and ted of the 2020s <laughs> and in 20 years we might get a sequel with them in it when they're like 60 years old or whatever right um okay any any closing thoughts and barb and star go to vista del mar uh, i did want to ask like i knew sure. that yeah you're not as hot on the movie as i was no. but you did say you laughed a couple times what was what was your favorite gag in the movie I actually wrote down the line that i laughed funny at <laughs> the most at um yeah um, there's two lines and there were one-off lines. Um, one, it was when I forget who plays the hotel concierge dude. Isn't he like famous? Oh, right. From the Christopher Guest movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he talks about, um, how they get the room. The family went missing, blah, blah, blah. That's how they get the hotel room and the nice thing. And he goes, it's always the husband. I thought yeah. that was hilarious. Cause yeah. it's a cultural touchstone. We all watch true crime stuff. It is always the husband. Um, and then there's a moment, and this is my favorite moment in the moment in the film. They sometimes cut back to the Nebraska Talk Club um, every so often oh, yes. throughout the film. And there's one moment when they they go back, and one of the ladies says, uh, "I like looking at wicker, but not sitting." Oh on my it. gosh, that was one and of my big laughs too. The funniest line ever. Because it's true. True. It's true. It's funny because it's true. Yeah. Um, no, there's definitely lines in here that that I liked. It's just I, like you said, like comedy. Although Janine Garofalo told me once that it wasn't that comedy is not subjective. She yelled that at me once in a New York comedy club. Um, <laughs> but so that's a true story. Uh, but uh yeah it is subjective for the most part and like what you get out of it is kind of what you put in your communal experience for me it's just not there it doesn't click mm-hmm. but like when we watched naked gun a, a week before i couldn't stop laughing and i've seen that movie like 600 times <laughs> right and for other people that are watching they're like why are you laugh like what what's going on here yeah like, I don't understand. why is I'm this not, funny? i'm not a huge fan of that one <laughs> yeah exactly so it's like one of those things where if it, if it clicks it clicks and it, it doesn't it doesn't so um, if you like absurdist stuff and you uh, more, it's more of you like Kristen Wiig. Like if you like her yeah. and her style of comedy, like I think you will get something out of this because it's definitely a showcase for her and her work. Oh man. What are we doing next week? Is it's, it my it, choice? It is yeah. my choice. What, am I, what did I choose? You're picking an old movie and you are going with the 20th anniversary. Speaking of movies that maybe didn't stand the test of time, Christopher <laughs> Nolan's Memento. Oh God. Yeah. I can't wait. And we have a special guest Molly with us. I think on that one too. That's going to be, 
a lot of fun. Right. Uh, and- yeah, Memento is a, a film that I think, yeah, it was a big film for us when we were growing up as teenagers or like 19 or 20, whenever it came out. It will be strange to revisit that one. I'll tell you that much. Yep. It's streaming now on Tubi for free as well as on Prime Video. So check it out and then check back in with us next week on Film Trace. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.